I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Hello, Seth. Happy March. Thank you. You too. (laughs) March is such a fun time because it's still technically winter, but you start to defrost a little bit after the the long months of cold, some snow. We've gotten even snow here in central Virginia this year, so... I'm excited for spring. Me too. I feel like I it might take me all of March to defrost. Yeah. Defrost. Go through Lent. All the good <laughs> stuff. And you know what else we get to do in March? Is we get to address a particular question. Okay. Okay. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to have to operate a coffee shop that's in your church? Or have to sell handmade arts and crafts that you made yourself in your church man i get this is pretty easy for me i'm gonna have to go with coffee because i'm not gonna be able to hand make arts and crafts it's gonna be a disaster but can you make coffee i i think i can learn that easier than i can learn (laughs) the arts and crafts wait so if you did have to do an arts and crafts table though to sell things at your church what would you make um (laughs) i have no idea i'm thinking of what i could make like i can photoshop is that is that under art i would think so okay yeah i could photoshop like jesus into like famous pictures (laughs) but otherwise i have no idea (laughs) Or people could send you their family pictures and you could Photoshop Jesus into their family photos. Yeah, exactly. That would be a good one. Or Photoshop anything they wanted. Like you could put some Bernie with his mittens in there. Ted Cruz in the airport. <laughs> I think I think you'd be missing out on Photoshop by opening the coffee shop. I think you're I think you're missing out on a pretty lucrative church business opportunity. <laughs> I think I would have to go with coffee as well. Just because I feel like that would bring better energy than just, like, mockery to (laughs) to what was going on in the church. And I don't know if you've been a part of a church that has a coffee shop inside. Not just, like, burnt coffee in a giant urn that people can come and get in styrofoam cups in the fellowship hall. But, like, full-on coffee shop. But can you imagine? I've been to a church before where they give you, like, a free specialty drink if it's your first Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah. It's maybe a little too capitalistic for my taste, but I also don't drink coffee. (laughs) Wait, me neither. That's why I'd have to learn how to make coffee. But I think I I could learn. We could open a coffee shop together and call it No Experts Allowed. (laughs) 
because we don't know how to make coffee. <laughs> like, here's your bad coffee. I also put this tea bag in some hot water. This is probably going to be better. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I think you'll see the connections with this question in our passage today. So will you go ahead and read this passage from the Gospel of John for us? I'd love to. This is John 2, verses 13 to 22, from the New Revised Standard Version. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, I think I'm getting the connection already, but before we get there, why did you choose the NRSV this week? Yeah, I've said before, the NRSV is one of my go-to translations, um, especially if I'm looking at language. And there was a pretty important language distinction that the NRSV upholds that some other translations don't that I wanted to talk about in a little bit. So we'll get there. But whenever I want to focus on the language, especially the original languages, I usually go with the NRSV. It's one of my favorites. So as you read through this passage, what stood out to you? Maybe this is what you wanted to talk about. But one of the things that stood out to me was when Jesus makes a whip of cords and then drives out the sheep and the cattle from the temple. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That is is where the language issue comes up for me. Uh, So I I did a little bit more digging on this specifically. And the commentator Alan Dwight Callahan in the New Testament commentary, True to Our Native Land, talks about how some of the oldest manuscripts and notes on this passage get closer to what the NRSV does here. So it starts off in verse 14, talking about how Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and then there were money changers. So there's people and animals there. So the following verse, verse 15, talks about Jesus making a whip of cords Probably better translated something like a whip. Like, we're not mm. thinking Indiana Jones here, like <laughs> whipping it around his head and just like, you know, lashing people across the arm or getting animals out. It's just like something that he can use to drive the animals out. But the translation here in the NRSV says, making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. So it talks about him specifically addressing the animals with the makeshift whip. Some other translations, like the Common English Bible, make a very important change uh, that's very minor. He says he made a whip from ropes and chased all of them out of the temple, including the cattle and the sheep, 
which implies that he's then driving people out of the temple with a whip, which just gives a very different image. All of it seems pretty out of character for the Jesus that we encounter in the Gospels, but I think that distinction especially is really important to highlight, that this isn't Jesus driving everybody out with an Indiana Jones, like, crack whip that's just tearing people and animals apart. Like, that's not what's going on. It's much more like he did what he could to get the animals out of there and like create the chaos that you know, led to him being able to make these statements about the temple a little mm-hmm. later. So that language is super important. And that's why, that's why I chose this, uh, this translation, but also why I wanted to highlight that specifically. So that's an important part of the story is, is we're creating this imagery in our head. It is in some ways a violent scene. It's a chaotic scene. But this is not Jesus to human violence. I think as it's portrayed here in John, I would feel pretty comfortable saying that relatively definitively as much as we can understand based on the Gospels. I confess to thinking of it like the Indiana Jones style whip. (laughs) So that was helpful. Yeah. Well, and I think the clarification too is really important because this passage is so often one that is used and I would say misused to justify all sorts of violence. So when you have conversations about peace, about what it means that God's kingdom, that the reign and realm of God is a peace-filled kingdom, a kingdom oriented towards shalom, people always counter with, but Jesus made a whip in the temple. And that's like the justification (laughs) for like, gross military action and you know all these things that just like all come back to this one moment that is probably lost in translation so i think that that clarity it's important for our understanding of the text but it's also important for us to counter these really quite literally harmful narratives that use this text as one of its anchoring points and with that just pouring out the coins and overturning the money changers' tables. Right. Like, those create some sort of chaos, but it's not violence against people, right? It's a different, different yeah. type of... It's it's totally action. disruptive. Like, there's yeah. no question about that. Jesus was making a scene, but I think it's important for us to ask why. Uh, but before we get there, I want to ask if there was anything else. That That's where I want to dig in a little deeper. But I want to hear more about how you're reading this passage, what you're seeing that stands out to you. Maybe talk a little bit more about the passage itself before we kind of dive deep on what's going on here. Sure. This always catches me about the Gospel of John. The disciples like have no idea what's happening until the end, right? And then after he was raised from the dead, then they remember that he said all this. And they're right. like, oh yeah, it makes a lot of sense now. Which I always just try and empathize with them. Like, yeah, this was probably pretty crazy at the time. Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine just seeing this scene? Like the last, this is immediately following the story of Jesus at the wedding at Cana, where he does his first public miracle, prompted by his mother, turns water into wine. And so who the disciples are following and seeing as the guy who can pull off some pretty sweet party tricks is now coming into the holiest place in their culture and making a total mess like that 
Yeah, you're so spot on to be empathetic with their confusion and their surprise. It's just such a striking scene that Jesus really, to quote the great Ron Burgundy, well, that escalated quickly. (laughs) (laughs) But I think this story, too, is such a great example of why the format of the Gospels is really important and why understanding Mm -hmm. that format is really important. So a couple things here. Hmm. This is this is a story in the second chapter of John where Jesus is in Jerusalem. And the timeline of events in John has Jesus coming to Jerusalem a few times over the course of his ministry, where other gospels, like the Gospel of Luke, kind of culminate in his arrival in Jerusalem. And so the timeline, the geography, it doesn't quite line up between them. And then you also see here a very active narrator that's doing some interpretation along the way. So the narrator brings up how Jesus's disciples remembered this reference to Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, that that kind of insight, that's not from a kind of hands-off, unbiased narrator. That's something that someone who is intentionally constructing this gospel wants the readers or the audience to know. Same goes with verse 21, where the narrator interjects that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. He was speaking in this metaphorical language. Well, th- were the disciples aware of that? You know, it's it's all these questions that this type of passage, I think, so well identifies a really good characteristic of the Gospels, that there's a particular audience in mind, and there's a particular lens from which the author or the constructors are coming from. These are stories that are constructed with intention to show us something about Jesus. So I just, I love how you you picked up on some of that, seeing how the disciples were portrayed. All these things are, are really intentional choices. Are we ready to talk about Shalom? I'm excited. I'm as excited <laughs> so. as you can be to talk about yeah. Shalom. So I, I think that to kind of wrap up our conversation about the story of this text... My question, like one, if what's the story is one A. My question one B this week is what's the big deal, Jesus? Like why, why is it that what he encounters in the temple prompts such a strong reaction? And there are a number of different ways this text has been interpreted, and there are other similar stories in the other gospels. Uh, no whips involved, but other stories in the gospels of Jesus clearing out the temple. And a, and a really powerful part of this narrative is that the the experience of coming to the temple needs to, we need to remember that that was a totally sacred journey and experience for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people. And those who were leading the temple decided to kind of market this experience, to make it an experience that required some sort of financial obligation. You know, sometimes folks would travel from really far away and couldn't afford the animals. They, they didn't have an animal that they could sacrifice themselves. They didn't have that kind of financial flexibility, if you want to put it that way, or the economic flexibility to sacrifice an animal. So there they were, for sale right there in the temple. But then when you had people fa- coming from far away who might have had different types of currency or maybe didn't use Roman currency as much, you imagine that those money changing tables weren't exact they weren't totally above board 
There's so much here that evidence is an exploitation of those who are under-resourced, who those who are marginalized, as they are seeking to faithfully pursue what they believe to be necessary for their faith. You know, it's, I, I'm thinking actually, you'd be proud of this, I'm thinking of one of the reasons that Martin Luther did what he did at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Seeing Luther criticize the Catholic Church over the sale of indulgences, you know, extracting money to pay for these huge cathedral projects from the poor by convincing them that, you know, these indulgences were necessary for their loved ones to leave purgatory and potentially get to heaven. And I'm not Catholic. I realize that interpretation is very Protestant focused. <laughs> like, But th- those are the kinds of things that draw out these kinds of reactions. That's what that's what brings out the whip. That's what brings out Luther's hammer to nail his 95 theses to the door of the church at, at Wittenberg. Like, this kind of exploitation and restriction of access to true worship of God is what is prompting Jesus to seemingly act so out of character, but maybe because this story is here, that that kind of reaction is totally in character for Jesus in response to this kind of, this kind of experience. So, Hmm. so what do you think? Does that, does that ring true with you? I tried to, I tried to play it up as much to connect to Luther as much as possible just for you, but (laughs) I'm honored. Yeah, it does. And I think, you're right when you say that that's what angers Luther the most, right? Is that it, for him, it's fundamentally like about the church making money and that that has moved it away from its religious obligation to its to its people. Yeah, I'm like thinking of like what ways do we see this contemporarily, right? Yeah. And like the coffee shops won, certainly. <laughs> I also wonder whether churches that don't have access to a lot of parking or then the the parking is on the street and metered, which sometimes the meters aren't running on Sundays, but like that right. can be a barrier to some people, right? To try and go there and even find a parking spot and then to pay the meter. Yeah. Like, well, and you know, that, that comes with the assumption that folks are going to be able to drive, drive their own all. car yeah. to, to get there. And, you know, you've you've led us right into kind of the conversation I was hoping we'd have around what's the point of this text is, you know, seeing the kind of reaction that Jesus had to this kind of exploitation. You know, what are the ways in our in our churches that we do exclude the poor from our communities intentionally or not? You know, there's been the huge trend uh, over the past several decades of, you know, large churches leaving the urban settings that they were in. And building these mega campuses out with huge parking lots that aren't metered, but you know, still require some form of private or personal transportation to make it there. And even thinking about when we when we time our services or meetings or things like that, and and don't don't truly consider all types of folks who are working or not, or what their schedules might be in terms of their availability to participate. You know, we've, we've made decisions about what's important to be church that have still, again, intentionally or not, 
made it far more difficult for those who are most vulnerable to actively participate in the life of the body of Christ in certain places. Like, yeah, I think we need to have the kinds of reactions. I'm not saying we should go and dump out the coffee urns and, you know, smash the arts and crafts table. <laughs> that's, not, that's not necessarily what I'm saying. But clearly, this type of exclusion prompted the strongest reaction we ever see from Jesus. This is what gets his blood boiling the most, coming from someone who freely let his blood shed and flow when other injustices were going on that were directed towards Jesus directly. You know, why such a strong response? And I can only think that it's because that type of exclusion stands in such stark contrast to what God wants for us. Yeah, I'm even thinking about the crafts table. I mean, that's obviously not the most egregious example, but maybe the, the crafts table needs to, does it need to go? Does it, can we move it far away somehow? Like, so it's not as associated, right, with our, with like worship experiences. It almost feels like, like, is that kind of, again, the example of the table or the coffee shop? The question, I think, becomes more pressing when something like that becomes a barrier to full participation. Like if it's an option, like getting a cup of coffee, okay. Buying a Photoshop of your family (laughs) with Bernie Sanders sitting angrily in the background with his mittens on, like maybe not the best ideal place for it, but may, it doesn't have to be a barrier to participation in the life of the church. What I'm thinking about are things like, you know, maybe youth retreats, that have a really high cost and there's no opportunity for the church to offer scholarships or opportunities for, uh, for folks who can't afford to pay for a few days away, you know, and even, you know, how do we talk about volunteering for things like that too? You know, not everyone has the chance to go away for a whole weekend. You know, mm-hmm. the, their work schedules might have them working. How committed are we to Sunday morning? You know, it's, it is traditionally, you know, for the white collar work week, Sunday morning or Sundays are available for folks to do things like worship. But we don't live in a world where everything closes down on Sunday for that purpose anymore. And increasingly, the services that we depend on or the services that those who have more resources come to enjoy the most operate fully on Sunday. I mean, people go leave church and go to restaurants at least in a time i'm sure that's still happening now but at least in time where like it was safer to do so it's like oh so we're we're valuing certain members of our community but still recognizing that our schedule directly conflicts with a whole group of people who need good news who need who need liberation just like all of us who now we're going to go and pardon my French, but we're going to go and treat like shit and tip like shit because, you know, we have something better to offer them than, mm-hmm. you know, a, a fair, a fair wage or like actual monetary gratitude for, you know, the experience that we've provided. We don't need to go into the merits or lack thereof of the tipping system in restaurants. <laughs> that's another, that's another podcast, but it stands in such stark contrast with how we prioritize certain things in our community and then immediately go away and share how those values actually play out when interacting with folks who never could become part of our communities anyway because of what we've decided to value. 
Yeah, at least nobody asks to see your the Photoshop picture that you bought or your coffee cup as like a ticket to get in. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's not a barrier to to participation. Do you think that churches embracing technology has maybe created a slightly more level playing field? Certainly, not everyone has access right to the technology sure. that that is required to participate. But I wonder if that isn't some of it. Like when we talked about how, how people can get to these places, right, via their personal yeah. vehicle, like that's out of the equation at least. Sometimes I think people are excluded because of what they wear, but that's kind of out of the equation when you're when you're watching or over Zoom. Yeah. Hmm. No pun intended, but I think a fuller embrace of technology. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it happens all the time. I'm not sad about it. Um, I think a fuller embrace of technology has helped us take some steps towards broader access. I think it's not without its challenges or its questions, you know, coupled with the fact that most church members are of an age where technology has probably been a major learning area and maybe barrier to their participation over the past year or so since things have really changed. But I still think of folks who, you know, even from a physical access standpoint, could not have gotten into our buildings because you have to go up 18 stairs to get in the front door, they're able to participate more fully now in, in what we're offering. And I think the question becomes, how will we transition back into a world where it is safe or at least encouraged to gather in person again? Having learned what we've learned, and what will it mean when things inevitably change significantly as that type of transition happens again you know will we just abandon everything that we've learned and tried because we're tired of looking at our screens which i know we are or will we continue to bank on this wave of innovation that such a devastating experience for our communities has demanded of our churches you know I think we have an opportunity to transition into something new, something more welcoming, more inclusive, more thoughtfully invitational. I, I just fear that we're just going to settle back into the way things were and complain about why people aren't coming anymore. Like we were. Like we were. Yeah, me too. Yeah. That's the refrain I hear the most right now is I can't wait for it to be back to normal. Like, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. What is what is normal? And who's excluded and normal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what does it look like to to go back to exactly exactly the same situation? I'm thinking about this is this is maybe periphery to our discussion about how the church excludes people based on their income. But I'm also thinking of like seminary educations and how that also like excludes people, right, who couldn't afford. I'll be honest that what was then the Lutheran Theological Seminary at Gettysburg and what's now United Lutheran Seminary covered all of my tuition, but they didn't cover my housing costs or my books or the fact that I wasn't working for some of that time. Like that still was like a considerable like hit to to my finances so there's also ways in which we recreate barriers for people to be priests and pastors and leaders in the church 
because people simply can't afford it. Yeah. It's almost like the way we've emphasized those kinds of, I mean, a master's degree is such a statement of privilege, you know, yeah, in so yeah. many ways, like access to that, attaining that. In, in, I would say in some ways. You need an undergraduate degree. Yeah. Like two, it's like two. our our leadership then retains certain values and how you organize the church too. And so our, our clergy are trained as theologians, which is important, but they aren't trained as community organizers or builders. They're not necessarily trained as effective or constructive leaders. They're not trained in, you know, basic finance or other things. Like, and so it, it, there's such this there's this major disconnect that translates into a perpetuation of these values. It's like, well, I had to go through all of this, and so I'm going to utilize this type of communication or this, you know, valuing my voice as the one in charge here, rather than thinking of the church as the beloved community where all have something to bring to the table. And I don't know. I think we're longing for that kind of reconnection right now i really hope that we don't settle back in to the way things were to that normal that excluded the poor that excluded folks who don't look like us don't think like us don't love like us just feels like we're on the verge of something huge that maybe we do need to break out the whips or the hammers and figure out what we need to disrupt for this next era in the life of the church, post-pandemic, post-Christendom, like what Phyllis Tickle calls the age of the spirit, you know, this kind of seeming, this apparent reawakening of some deeper things about the church that are shedding some of the things that have been more harmful about our recent church experiences. I always think it's the external forces that shape the church, not its internal grumbling. And this is an example, I think, where, where what we see in, in wider society outside of the church is, is pushing us to do church in new ways and helpful ways. Yeah, I hope we can. Let's pray about it. That's a good start. Let's do it. Can I pray for us? I love that. God, well, Jesus walked among us. He had no place to lay his head no home to call his own. Help us to make our homes and our churches open and welcome to all, places where we can learn how to be more like you. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one who drove out the money changers, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we look at next week? Next week, we're talking about Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it.